Welcome to Business as Unusual, a podcast hosted by 360T, examining how firms in the FX industry are continuing to achieve business goals in an unusual working environment. Hello, and welcome to the podcast with myself, Galen Stops, and I'm delighted to be joined today by James O'Connor, a senior manager in the FX division at the Bank of England. James, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. How has the bank's market intelligence role been affected by the pandemic compared to other crises? I'm obviously thinking specifically of the financial crisis in 2008 here, for example. Yeah, interesting. I think, well, each and every crisis is different. As a central banker, you tend to mark your career in the number of crises you've lived through. (laughs) Uh, uh, My first one was Black Wednesday in 92, where I I was a junior on the desk, on the FX desk. Uh, At the time, we were buying sterling quite heavily. I think it's a little bit different. There was one point on the intensity of actually performing market intelligence during that time. Mm -hmm. And then there's a couple of examples, really, of how the MI market intelligence played a role in an actual examples. So yes, it was definitely a very intense period for markets, very intense for personally for the staff involved, but it was happening right at the same time as a very heightened period of volatility in financial markets. The demands on us to keep seniors informed were extremely high, as were the demands for us to move to new locations, to work from home, to wrestle with technology. So it was a very challenging time. But you know, those efforts are really crucial to our understanding of financial markets and all of the events going on in them. Providing that color to policymakers and those insights are really essential in helping identify what could be affecting monetary and financial stability. So I think we depended heavily on our kind of regular contacts in, in the market, those contacts of banks, non-banks, buy side, speaking to central bank contacts and other regulators throughout. It's all incredibly valuable in ensuring that we're kept abreast with what's going on. Actually, three things we've done, I think, remaining pretty agile in the way we apply our resource. Again, recognizing that the times were very demanding. We had to adapt, deprioritize certain things, but really focus our efforts where they were needed. Second, I think an interesting way in was there were two London FX Joint Standing Committee meetings called during March when it was all kicking off. You know, we use those to share perspectives uh, across a range of senior market participants, talking about market function issues or business contingency experiences, any settlement issues, those sorts of things. They're incredibly valuable. Third, you know, just being part of the international central bank community is also key, and we you know, we liaise regularly with them and other fora such as the Global FX Committee and the BIS. I think in real action, I mean, the MI certainly fed into two areas on the FX side. We, I mean, I'll just touch on the central bank swap lines. Okay. You know, the, the MI was key there in terms of really identifying quickly the need for a response and informing those decisions that sped up the provision of the swap lines. Second one would be the Global FX Committee's statement at the end of March, on the 26th of March, when you know we'd identified a potential need to raise awareness. I think we might come onto the code shortly, but that was another example, really, where the market intelligence, where the pressures were building, and it culminated in that GFXE statement. You're right. I did definitely want to ask you about the code. You mentioned it at the start. It came up again there. I obviously know particularly from my previous life covering this as a journalist, that the FX global code has been 
a big uh, industry initiative in recent years. Central banks, not just the Bank of England, but central banks globally have been trying to you know, support this initiative. So the obvious question that, that springs to my mind in this regard is, do you think that the FX industry has been better off for having this global code in place, given everything that's happened recently? It won't surprise you when I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I'll clarify that. I think, yes, there are probably three elements to why uh, the industry, I think, is better off. I mean, I think the code generally, there's three things. It definitely supports trust uh, between all counterparties. It's intended to be a living document, so it should evolve. And then I think, again, we can maybe just go into the specifics of where that's really manifested. So in the trust between counterparties. I mean, the code provides a, a kind of a good, solid foundation of shared understanding of what is good practice between mm-hmm. participants. That can help maintain trust in normal times, but also in times of market stress. You can get comfort in that settlement procedures are robust, trade monitoring and risk monitoring is done responsibly. And indeed, when the market is thrown a whole new set of circumstances like uh, working from home, trading from home, there's an element of trust or standards expected of people committing to behaving in accordance with the principles that require a fair and transparent approach to markets. So, you know, making sure that traders from home are equally um, working under the sort of principles of the code. I think in the second point about the code being a living document, it was always intended to be so, to evolve and adapt to changes in the market. There is a three-year review underway. And I helpfully, you know, this example of the last two months may provide some features uh, from which uh, that review can draw. Interesting. Um, so, you know, if there are new lessons to be learned from the crisis, you know, there is, there's a framework in the three-year review that we can use to try and embed them into um, any enhancements to the good practice that's already stated in the code. I mean, you know, the code is uh, sort of maintained by the yeah. Global FX Committee. In December after you know a fairly significant survey of uh, the code and the GFXC launched five working groups looking into some areas that were most prominent in the survey of areas that might need some further work i mean those, those working groups are i'll just list them their disclosures that will be chaired by Rowan Chairman of the Bank of England my boss there's one on TCA and algos there's one on anonymous trading there's one on buy side outreach, and there's one on execution principles that I will be representing the bank on. So I think those five working groups, you can quite see that some of those are going to be picking up themes and lessons learned from the recent bout of volatility. I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably leave it there. And then on the third point, just how the um, code helps navigate specific events. Yeah. And I think we come back to the GFXC statement of the 26th of March. You know, it's served to support uh, timely and relevant buy-side to sell-side conversations about potentially large month-end flows. Yeah. You know, clearly this at the time, intense volatility, potential large transactions, operational constraints with working from home. You know, the GFXC statement was aimed at trying to reduce or flag to people the need to reduce volatility of the markets and potentially the volatility of their outcomes if they are dealing large transactions. So it's a really good example, I think, of the code being put to work. Uh, The fact that the press release itself was predominantly quoting principles of the code without much need for explanatory text, I think, shows that the code uh, guidance was well calibrated in the first place. 
I think the benchmark's interesting. I mean, it's clearly come back into sharp relief, getting attention in the markets and in the media. A lot of press and, around it, yeah. Yeah, at the end of March and the end of April. And I think for us, you know, understanding the market intel, you know, we want to understand market structures. It's important that features like this are understood and reviewed from time to time to ensure that the needs of all participants are, are met. We know that markets are constantly evolving, much greater levels of electronic trading in recent years, more fragmentation across new platforms. I think the experience of March and April and of other big events, actually, highlighted the need to carefully assess or indeed adjust their approach to larger transactions at certain points in time. I'm aware that you know these month-end flows can be quite a difficult topic for banks and clients to discuss openly and frankly, especially when orders are large. But I think after the event, we did receive quite a lot of feedback from contacts that the statement was genuinely helpful to okay. participants from all sides. And I think it was particularly helpful in supporting the dialogue between the buy side and, and their banks. So I think it was a useful prop and a useful foundation upon which people can have those discussions in an appropriate manner. I think it's something we should keep on the agenda and hopefully you know, the success of this will be to see further open conversations of users of these types of transactions in, in future. I think the last thing there is just to say, sorry, just to say that this statement really reinforces going forward that the code's principles are there to support communication. Uh, and it's also just to reiterate, it's not just for banks, but it's also for the buy side. Interesting. From your perspective, then, from a market intelligent point of view, I'm talking about, are markets back to normal now? Obviously, working environment and working conditions are still slightly strange. Lots of people working from home, people beginning <clears> to think about moving back in. But are the markets themselves now, as far as you're concerned, pretty much back to normal or where they were before? I could be flipped and say, what is normal? <laughs> uh, I mean, the FX is in, a, it's in a continual state of change and evolution, isn't it? I mean, Spot FX always strikes me as a, a really simple product with a highly complicated structure fragmented yep. market, highly sophisticated players and investment in technology. The FX market is definitely, I think, known for its innovation and one of the most efficient markets. I don't think it's quite back to normal. Okay. I think there are still some headwinds to normality, such as working from home. I would say that you know a lot of people are talking about normal as if we can get back to January, February. But I would also just reflect and say January and February were all-time lows for spreads and all-time lows for implied volatility in FX markets. Yeah. So that maybe that wasn't really normal either. It was, you know, always so so low. And I think yeah, I think 2019 didn't it have the narrowest ever trading range for euro dollar, uh, and even going back to dollar mark before euro dollar, I mean, you could look at 50 years, and 2019 was the narrowest ever trading range. So I think we were in an environment of ultra-low volatility. We've had yeah. this great change in markets. We've normalized somewhat, but we're not back to January, February levels. Function-wise, I would say that the spot FX market seems to have held up pretty well, actually. Obviously, some very big moves, but there were also extremely high volumes. It was definitely one of the most intense periods of volatility I've seen in many years. It's entirely normal, I think, for prices to widen in terms of bid-offer spreads widening out. That must be expected for the given level of volatility and the given level of risk appetite. But despite that, I don't think we saw anybody being constrained from transacting. So you know, transactions were occurring fast, yeah. you know, and volumes are very high, and people were paying the prices. So 
function in a sense was seemed to work there didn't seem to be too many uh, difficulties i mean i think events such as this can highlight the changing nature of liquidity as well i hear people talk about liquidity being terrible or whatever but i think tracing back from about 2014 combination of factors you know such as increased electronification auto pricing changes in staffing i think that's all combined to reduce both the need and the desire potentially for some participants to warehouse fx risk to the extent they once did and whilst i think the top of book pricing is fantastically accurate in its millisecond moments and for its very small size of risk understanding what the real price is behind that for size can be a real challenge Navigating such a fragmented market is very complex, and I think that's why we see a greater use of new tools such as execution algos to solve some of those issues. It's funny, the comment about liquidity. Not too long ago, I was reading an article and it was published in 1999. It was a day in the life of a dealer. And so many of the complaints were the same as today. Oh, liquidity is no good. No one holds risk like they used to, etc. As an old chief dealer once said, there's always plenty of liquidity on the wrong side of the price. <laughs> exactly. You kind of were touching on something I wanted to ask you about there, which is, as well as a lot of press around benchmarks and the end of month trading, I've been reading a lot lately about FX algos and how in many, not in all cases, but in many cases, there has been an uptick in people using FX algos. Do you have any kind of views on what you've seen on that front, whether there's been an uptick and what the performance of FX algos has been like or how it's impacted the market? Uh, yeah, a few. Um, speaking frankly, I'm not a user of algos yet, but we have been very close to it in various uh, rounds of market intelligence. And I've clearly been tracking uh, sort of electronic market developments for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I think there's a combination of factors here as well. I think Yes, we detect there's been a rising or an increased use of execution algos over the last couple of months. I think speaking to a range of people in the market, that's a fairly common view. Probably, I think, for a number of reasons. It was interesting to me, I thought, because I thought the normal thinking would be a big blowout in market volatility. Mm -hmm. Traders might resort to voice trading. And actually, I think we saw a little bit of the opposite. Yes, there was certainly a lot more voice trading for people getting certainty of execution, but also an increase in the use of execution algorithms is an interesting development as well as users were able to achieve what I think are relatively good outcomes for themselves versus you know a standard kind of very wide risk transfer price. But also, I think they're interesting as a reliable and transparent method of transacting. Mm-hmm. In particular, for those working remotely, so there may be some idea that you know if you're sitting at home, you don't really want to be ringing up doing voice trades. But with an algo, there's a bit more of an audit trail, the timestamping, yeah. and the um, the transparency of it. As we just touched on earlier, with the complexity of the foreign exchange markets and the amount of fragmentation, the the use of algos and how they're becoming more sophisticated, they really aid the kind of search costs when you're looking for liquidity. So you know, deploying an algo. I think the intention is you can get access to a greater portion of liquidity than perhaps just uh, trading in an older style, particularly when kind of risk transfer prices were very wide, but not only very wide, but very disparate between counterparties at times. Another point, I think, is the longevity of algos. They've been around now for a number of years. It's taken some sectors a bit longer, I think, to really get comfortable with them. And I think there's a, there probably is one element of them being established there and people are getting yeah. a bit more comfort in using them. 
so one thing I'm interested in is if we see greater adoption of FX algos by the buy side firms, are we effectively rolling risk out of the sell side and into the buy side? And is that a healthy thing for the market if they're taking on more of this risk to execute themselves via algos? Uh, I think that's right. I think there is a risk transfer in this development. I strongly hope that both the users and providers understand that. Yeah. It's a market, isn't it? I mean, the banks are offering these algos alongside their other services. They're diversifying their own business. They're charging fees for the algos. And by doing so, they're also reducing their own market risk exposure. Kind of yeah. Consistent with that point above about maybe having to wear has less risk themselves. And on the flip side, users can benefit from much greater control in their execution, potentially greater transparency in all of the child orders that they're executing. But in doing so, they may take on more market risk in terms of the time risk yeah. in uh, in doing those transactions. So it's a trend. I won't say whether it's a healthy trend or not. It's, okay. it's a trend, but I think if people are they're aware of those risks and they're doing the appropriate TCA and they're understanding yeah. their execution and they can ask the right questions of their providers at the right times, then I think that's part of the market development. And then, James, the last thing I wanted to ask you was... We've been in lockdown for a while. Things are beginning to ease, uh, certainly in some countries. Some firms are eyeing, beginning to move staff back into offices, etc. What's your big area of focus now as we start to look towards the end of lockdown? Well, we're still unsure of when the end of lockdown might be, True. of course. You know, we are working from home for the foreseeable future and uh, you know, I think uh, our experiences of productivity and what the banks achieved is testament to it. it seems to be working and how well staff are adapting to it. So I think status quo at the moment, but I think the local thing for me is about continuing to adapt to these new ways of working if we are here for the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing for sure is even if we get back to the office soon, it won't be the same. The checks in the office for you know temperature scanning and distancing yeah. and things is is going to make it you know a very different place to the one we left a few months ago. But I think really looking carefully at the staffing to try and maintain and improve our working structure that looks likely to be semi permanent, not just working from home but trading from home. I think that's going to be a key part of the next few months. And the other thing I think looking forward to the restarting of the um, GFXC working groups. Yeah. Uh, which uh, did take a bit of a pause in the last two months. As I said, I'll be on the execution principles and Rowan, my boss, will be on their disclosures. There's plenty to uh, get involved with there. I think a key message from all of this for me, I think heading back to some sort of normality, but not yet. We need to reflect on working practices. You know, I think really thinking about staff well-being and how to keep teams together and motivated when you're distanced is going to be a challenge. Yeah. I think we continue to really depend heavily on our market contacts and leverage our MI best we can. And to that end, you know, on the three-year review of the code, you know, it's only as good as the inputs we get. The working groups are represented by, you know, all corners of the market, buy side, sell side, central banks. But if people listening to this have particular views on certain aspects of the market about which they're not so happy, then I'd encourage them to either get in touch or get in touch with their local committees and try and feed in their thoughts, improve the uh, code going forward. Excellent. Well, James, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for that. That was genuinely very interesting and insightful. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to Business as Unusual. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.